It's a rare thing when one person can come forward and change the course of American history, but our next guest did just that. With an unpopular war raging in the late 60s, an embattled president looked to extend his time in office forward for another four years. Many were calling for someone to challenge Lyndon Johnson in 1967. The Vietnam War was increasingly seen as raging out of control with no clear goals in mind. And at that point, Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota decided to come forward from a group of anti-war senators to challenge LBJ. With a surprisingly strong showing in the New Hampshire primary, McCarthy played David to Johnson's Goliath. The president then stunned the nation by withdrawing from the presidential race. Next, Senator Robert Kennedy threw his hat into the ring as LBJ pulled wires to get Vice President Hubert Humphrey the nomination. What followed was worthy of a Shakespearean tragedy as Eugene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy fought it out in the primary states. It's all in your history books, the battle of Johnson Humphrey versus McCarthy versus Kennedy. And joining us today on the program is the distinguished former senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy. It is said that those who do not know history are condemned to repeat it. As we face troubled times, a war raging overseas that looks like a quagmire, and a president who's been less than truthful, and plans on the drawing board to reinstate a military draft, we can't think of a better guest than someone who's seen this sort of thing before and did something about it. Senator Eugene McCarthy, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. Now, Senator, in the early 1950s, you were elected to the House, having previously been a professor of sociology and economics. That's right. And uh, you were the first person in Congress who stood up to Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin and challenged him to a debate. I, I was, yes. What, how did McCarthy respond to that? Well, he said, this is not going to be an Irish brawl, is it, Gene? And I thought, it depends on you. And it was a pretty orderly sort of debate. So did, did the debate actually take place? It actually took place, yes. Couldn't get anybody else to debate, Joe, so I thought I could handle it more. We did all right. Is there is there a record of this anywhere? This would be something for the uh, Museum of Broadcasting. I don't know. I, I've, I've got a text of it somewhere around. Wow. Oh, Senator McCarthy, you served in the United States Senate with Lyndon Johnson prior to LBJ becoming John Kennedy's running mate. Um, the historian Robert Cairo has called LBJ the most powerful man ever to have served in the U.S. Senate. Does that does that ring true to you? Well, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I guess he was the most powerful one that served in the Senate while I was there, but I, I, don't, know. I don't know what others have done in the past. I, I think that probably... Some of the senators at the time of the debates over anticipating the Civil War may have had comparable power. Yeah. But Lyndon kind of made it up a little bit, and then the press took it up as to how powerful he was, you know, and so he said, yes, I am. So that was something Lyndon Johnson himself was playing up. Yeah, he played it a little bit. Not too much. It didn't do a lot of harm, but uh, he was pretty powerful, and in fact, in his achievement before the election of 1958. He could then play the Republicans and the Democrats and the Dixiecrats against each other. It was a kind of a three-way deal. After the 58 election, was the election I was I was elected in, but we elected about 15 new members of the Senate Democrats. Quite a liberal bunch, I gather. That's right. So he didn't have to manipulate 
uh, as he had before. He kind of had to stay ahead of the crowd. You you were basically forming some of a nucleus for his civil rights efforts, I guess. We made the difference, yeah. Then it was just a question of when we'd act, and Lyndon really wanted us to act in uh, early 63, before Kennedy was killed in 63. He thought we should have had a civil rights fight. Uh, he said, you can't stop it. You've you got to do it. When it's, when, it's, when it's here. And he was pretty fatalistic about it. He said, he said things like, we're going to pass civil rights legislation, but it'll be the end of the Democratic Party in the South. That's proven to be true this many years later, it would seem. It, it was true. He said it'd take two or three years, but that'll be it. But, but he said, you've got to do it. And he knew it. And the, the Southerners were kind of tragic people then because they knew that the uh, with the Civil Rights Act and with coming on, that their careers were over. And the old days of the Southerners controlling the Senate would be gone. And, and people like Strom Thurmond, I guess, jumping ship from the Dixiecrats, and so ma- as so many did, to become Republicans. That's right. Lyndon thought we should, this was, of course, before John Kennedy was shot, that we should have had a, we should have had a civil rights fight in 1963. Kennedy decided to finesse it through the 64 election and pick it up after that election. And Lyndon said, go away. We ought to do it now. I guess even though he'd become vice president, Lyndon liked to still come back over to the Senate and talk to his old colleagues such as yourself. He did like to because partly he was neglected by the administration. He said, anyway, that he wasn't included, so he kind of, he never took his office out of the Capitol, you know. Other vice presidents had offices in the executive office building, but Lyndon kept his just outside the door of the Senate. I didn't know that. He'd kind of corral you as you were leaving the Senate at 5.30 or 6. Right. Kind of wanted to open the door and say, come on in. And, and I gather some people thought it was inappropriate for him to do that and said, look, Lynn, you're not a senator anymore. Well, some did, but it, it was all right. It was kind of interesting. They weren't being nice to him in the, in the, in the White House or in the executive offices. So he, he had a medical report on all the Southerners and all the anti-civil rights senators. He had their medical reports? Well, he knew about me. He had a medical opinion on them all. He, Well, in, in 1964, the choice for LBJ's vice president came down to you and your good friend and fellow Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey. Lyndon was pretty well set on Hubert from the beginning, but he wanted a little bit of excitement at the uh, convention. And Hubert said, I'll, be, I'll do anything you want, and I mean anything. So he picked Humphrey. I said, I only lost by one vote. And I said, what do you mean by one vote? I said, there was only one vote cast. <laughs> Well, you, uh, Humphrey became LBJ's vice president and got someone embedded in the whole Vietnam policies of his administration. Uh, did, you try and, did you try and work on Humphrey to try and separate him from Johnson on that? Well, once he took over from Johnson's position, there wasn't much you could do. Well, um, you also served in the Senate with uh, John Kennedy. That's right. I was in the House with him, too. And you, I guess you got along pretty well. Yeah, Bobby was a different problem, but uh, Jack and I... I was invited to his birthday parties, and I was invited to his wedding, which was considered really being invited in. And he asked me to, he was handling the uh, education bill in the Senate to give a speech against the uh, loyalty oath. In your opinion, do you think Vietnam might have been avoided had not Jack Kennedy been assassinated? Well, I don't know. I'm of a mixed mind. There are two ways to get one trying to prove something after Cuba, and the other was 
fact that he stopped the Cuban thing and also the Laotian thing. Yeah. That he, he might very well have done something about Vietnam, too. Well, were you surprised to see the Vietnam War expand so dramatically as it did in 1965, excuse me, after Johnson had run as a peace candidate against Barry Goldwater? Johnson said he wasn't going to send American boys, but I, I guess his advisor said, look, we can do it, you know, we just got to have a lot of troops in there. He said in before he got done, about 500,000. Yeah. Johnson thought he was going to, uh, he was going to win. Kennedy had only sent in 17,000. It was, it was quite a remarkable expansion, at least three oh, times yeah. what we have in Iraq right now. And then Nixon extended into in Cambodia, you know. Right. And extended the bombing and all this. It was just, it was, in some ways, the escalation was like that in, in, in this world. The, the situation was a little better there. You at least had a defined government you could talk to. Right. What did you think of Nixon, by the way? Well, when the pressure was on, he always re- kind of became the old Nixon again, you know. I was a little surprised that he recognized China. I was glad he did. The Democrats should have done it, you know. Yeah. His career, the last thing he'd ever do was recognize the Chinese, and it was the last thing he'd ever do. That <laughs> made himself an honest man. <laughs> I was invited to a, something for Jerry Ford at the University of Michigan, and people said, well, why did he ask you? Well, I said, I don't know, but I was glad to go because... When he was president, he did everything I said I'd do if I got elected president. So he, he ended the war, and he, he brought the troops home, and he extended amnesties with everyone involved. He pardoned Nixon. I don't know whether I'd have done that, but, uh, but uh, all of the major actions taken by Jerry Ford really brought the war to an end. I, I, I never thought of it, Senator. I guess I guess you're right. But he was quite pleased that I gave him credit for doing what I would have done. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you you also served in the Senate with Bobby Kennedy, and I guess you don't carry the same favorable impression of Jack you do of your rival Bobby. Well, Bobby was a different person. He really he didn't really fit in the Senate. So he was he was an executive guy and a justice man, and he was sort of curious. The uh, when Jack was killed, the whole kind of direction of what we call the Kennedy forces were in setting things up so that Bobby could succeed, and that meant succeeding Lyndon. And it even, as it turned out, it meant Bobby was going to run against Lyndon. The Kennedy forces, so-called, were set on having Bobby succeed to the presidency. And they were also worried about me. I, I didn't think I was a real threat, but they did. Didn't Bobby promise you that he'd stay out of the race if you challenged well, Johnson? Well, question of promise. But you, 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 I talked to him and said, you know, if you're going to run, I won't. But... Uh, I never said that I would support him. I just said, I won't run. And if you don't run, I will run. And he said, I won't run. You entered the the race, and the rest is history. Well, that's right. It changed the whole cast of the campaign. We were running it purely against the war in Vietnam. Bobby introduced all kinds of issues that had nothing to do with, uh, with, with Vietnam. I, I recall so well that that year of election. I, I would have voted for you had I been old enough. Unfortunately, yeah. I wasn't. Uh, the California primary, I guess, was made winner take all, and a large block of delegates was going to go to either you or Senator Kennedy, That's with which right. to challenge Humphrey in Chicago. Right. It was very close. Kennedy did edge you out, but uh, 24 hours later, he was dead. That's right. The question I have to ask is sort of what-if question you've probably been asked before. If Bobby hadn't entered the race and you'd taken California, how many delegates would you have taken to challenge Humphrey? Oh, we were we were still short because Humphrey got he got the solid South, you know, and that included uh, Texas, 
and uh, then you got some of the northern states. And I don't think the party would have would have given ground. They were too committed to the war. Yeah. In spite of Cal- the California primary, it would have been still very tough sledding for you against Humphrey. Yeah, because the party was, you know, they were really committed. They never forgave me. So I don't think they would have done it at the convention, but it would have been quite a convention. And the, the, the story has really never been told. You know, when Bobby came in, he brought with him two dogs. He came into Oregon with two dogs and an astronaut and Rosemary Greer and uh, Rayford Johnson uh-huh. and his mother. Went to Father Flanagan's boys' home on Mother's Day. We were kind of serious about ending the war. We didn't bring our dogs, and didn't bring our mothers, and didn't bring any football players. Right. Now, you were also in the Senate with Ted Kennedy and Robert Byrd of Virginia. They were contemporaries of yours. They're both still around, critical of the current war in Iraq. Uh, That's right. Could yeah. you comment on, on both those men? I think Teddy's worked out to be a, a, a pretty good kind of a standard senator, and, and so has so is Bobby. Bobby's been a kind of defender of the Constitution. I guess you stay in the Senate long enough, you turn out to be all right. <laughs> now, you once entered Dwight Eisenhower's classic speech in the military-industrial complex into the congressional record. That's what they tell me. I, I, I entered it, but I, and they tell me I was the only one that did, that the Republicans were shying away from it. Uh-huh. But I did put it in the record. Do you see our current government as sort of being, well unduly controlled by such powerful interests that Eisenhower warned us about profiting from war. Oh, it is, you know. Actually, the Tocqueville warned us in almost the same language that Eisenhower did. John Adams in 1780 said that the worst thing you could have in a constitution like ours is politics controlled by two parties. That was in 1780. Yeah. I sort of raised this issue in 76. It didn't get it quite defined, but there's a woman political scientist at the University of Minnesota has written a book entitled The Tyranny of the Two-Party System. And her attack on the two-party system is, is, is frontal. She challenges the labeling of the Republican and Democratic parties as parties and, and challenges all the claims that are made for the two-party system. And it's, it's amazing. I just reduced it to the last roughly 50 years, but we had two parties that tolerated Joe McCarthy, you know. Yes, we did. Actually protected him. Yes, we did. One after one, no one would take him on. We had the two parties that promoted the Vietnam War, the two parties that promoted the Cambodian War, the two parties that promoted the invasion of Cuba. And we got two parties now that seem to be supporting a war in Iraq. That's right. Uh, two parties are uh, building up the military-industrial complex. And you can see it coming uh, in '47. The, the war had been fought under the War Department. Right. Always the Secretary of War, the War Department. That's right, and the name disappeared. And I asked the Pentagon, how did it happen, or the committee, whose idea was to call it the Defense Department? They said, oh, it just, uh, just came up. You know, we, we haven't had a war since then until recently. Uh, it's always been defense. Right. We declared defense. So that was the first breakthrough. Then... They had McNamara, who was unifying everything, so you didn't have to have real competition. You just deal with one military establishment, and it was all it was all planned. McNamara wasn't very successful, but he he had it in mind. But well, he hadn't been very successful uh, with the uh, unification of the Ford Motor Company. You know, <laughs> he tried to do it with the Edsel. Right. It didn't work. Did you see Did you see the Fog of War? By the way, the no, film with McNamara. I, I, I don't want to look at him. Yeah. 
tried to get one airplane, fighter plane for the three branches, the TFX, and that didn't work. And he, he tried to unify the military bands. He was going to do away with the military with the Marine band, which he didn't get any place without. Well, that's a re- that's a real cost-saving measure. <laughs> that's right. It shows how how uninformed, insensitive he was. Because you could you could take away the Marine Corps, but not the band. Right. And he actually had a plan going that never got public to establish a GI religion. I, I don't. I've never heard this. They, they never surfaced it. We knew it was there, and I tried to get copies of it. And it was doing the theology and. They never, they never would do it. And they finally dropped the plan, but they were going to do away with ministers or priests and rabbis and have a religious officer. And I suppose the crowning failure of the two-party government is that they, they have not produced a presidential election process. It didn't leave the nation dependent on its choice of president on you know, the five votes of a politicized Supreme Court. Yes. Florida winner-take-all, weighted by the votes of Cuban refugees. Well, Senator, is there any is there any final thing you'd, you'd like you'd recommend to college students today to bring about a better future? Well, I don't know. I I, I think we're in real trouble unless we do something about the t- uh, two two party system. Election reform law, the fifty six fifty seven. We found that in the minds of many people, the two party system is superior to the Constitution. We were making our case on the on the grounds that it was unconstitutional, it violated freedom of speech of assembly. But everyone, including the seven Supreme Court justices, said they were acting in the interest of the two-party system. Wow. And, and that's where we are. Marshall Field said this is a two-party country. Gerald Ford said when he signed the federal election law, it was unconstitutional, but he believed in the two-party system. And that's where we are. Wow. And, and, and it's a frightening thing because you get a Supreme Court that's politicized, and then you get this two-party system belief. Why you're stuck with right where we are. Well, yes, we are. So tell them about it. Okay. Senator, we thank you so much for talking with us. But would you would you come on again some point? Is the yeah, election? Sure. Give me a call sometime. Well, we'd love to, we'd love to do exactly that. All right. All right. Well, thank you once again. Bye bye. Righty. I can't tell how pleased I am to have brought Senator Eugene McCarthy to this program. He is a, a figure from the history books. And I'm delighted at his invitation to call back, and I think we will have to do that in the future. You're listening to Radio Parallax. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, and I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Chances come at last. Gotta go out, get those reds. The only good commie is the one that's dead. And you know the peace could only be won when we're going to all the kingdom come. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting? 